So take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 this morning is what we are looking at. Continuing right along through our work in Philippians. This morning, like I told you last week, live worthy. That's going to be the theme now for the next few Sundays. But nuances of that, various uh, ways to, to look at that. This morning is unity through humility. Humility is one of those really, really interesting words. Uh, It means different things to different people, but biblically it only really means one thing, and we'll get to that biblical definition in a minute. C.S. Lewis wrote a great paragraph on what humility is. He said, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Didn't Lewis have a way with words? Man. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. Here's a key phrase. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least, nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. And Lewis wrote that in Mere Christianity. Rick Warren later on condensed that very well in his book, A Purpose Driven Life, when he said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's a great condensation of that passage. I think that shows the difference between our American uh, need to compact things and get it done quicker and the British need there to really just, let's talk about this for a a minute or two. Uh, But both of them are beautiful. Humility is what we're talking about this morning. Unity through humility. Unity in the church through the humility of the people of the church. And if you want, need, would like a, a theme for this message, a big idea, since we have all we need from the Trinity, we can live worthy as we unify through humility. That's a condensation of this passage that we're about to read, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Read that with me. Uh, if, you, if you have the Faith Life app, you can get to the scripture there. If you don't have a a hard copy of God's Word or one on your device. Chapter 2, verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. These four verses in our Bible, uh, depending on how your translation breaks it up, maybe 
three or four sentences. It's actually one long sentence in Paul's Greek. He loved to do that. So there, there's really no break in, in what he's saying. It, it's a lot of uh, ing verbs in there that you would have said, doing this, having, thinking, not uh, considering, etc., etc. So we take this all as one passage. But as our main idea stated, we have, uh, since we have all we need from the Trinity, we can live worthy as we unify through humility. Well, what do we have from the Trinity? That is Paul's first statement here. He begins in, in my translation by saying in verse 1, if then. See, we have Trinitarian power. Trinitarian power. We, we don't focus enough in church, I don't think, on the Trinity. I mean, we sing about him some, it some, we, we sing about the three persons, we, we talk about them, but we fail to realize that our, uh, our worship of God is the worship, I don't think that we fail to realize, we don't think about enough, that our worship of God is of a Trinitarian God. We, we, we know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we, we've got the distinctions in our head, but we don't think hard enough sometimes about the unity. Paul, while he never makes a clear, this is a Trinitarian statement in Scripture, he often puts these allusions, these nuggets of Trinitarian theology in his writings. And that's what he's done here. He's, he's created uh, a, a trinity of our access of what we have, of what we know, and we have Trinitarian power. He says, if then, and when he begins the sentence in, in verse 1, really that word is probably better translation, if is a good translation, his intent is since. It's not, he's, not really an, he's not really asking a question. You know, uh, we would compare it to being uh, voluntold. I need a volunteer. You're a volunteer. I need three volunteers. You, you, you. You're volunteering. It's, it's, it's not a, he's not really asking them, you know, do you, is it true that you have? No, he's saying since. I mean, rhetorically, if, and we all know it's true. If we, or if then, there is any encouragement in Christ. Here's our first part of his, our Trinitarian power. If we have any, if there is any encouragement in Christ, Paul is always going to be, uh, to begin with Christ. Now, as we think about the Trinity, we of course think Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's kind of our order. That's what Scripture shows us. But Paul, in no way uh, subordinating the Father to the Son, is going to begin with Christ because that's the gospel. That is the, the message that he, that the Philippians, that all of us have to share. So he's going to begin with that. And he's already been talking about Christ. He's already, already been talking about suffering. If you went back, I'm just kind of glancing through my passage, uh, the previous passages in Philippians, how many times he mentions Christ. I, it just, just jumps out at me, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, ten, let's see, eleven, and then I just got to verse one. I didn't even look at verses uh, one through eleven of chapter one. So I mean, Christ, he is pounding this idea. So he begins here in this Trinitarian power with 
Christ. But he begins with the idea that he ended with in the previous passage, suffering. As we suffer for Christ, he's saying, not if, but as, when, we suffer for him, we share in encouragement from him. The very same Jesus that calls us to suffer and die, the very same Jesus that calls us to lay down our lives and says, do this for me, says, now I will be there with you when it happens. As you go through it, as you do it, I will be there. We receive encouragement from him in this Trinitarian power. That's the first aspect that Paul is covering here of this Trinitarian power that we have. The second aspect is he moves to the Father. Now, he doesn't mention the Father, but we have this theme. He has Christ, and then he makes another short statement, and then he mentions the Spirit, and then the ideas of love, especially in Corinthians when he references love. He is usually referencing love from the Father. The Old Testament idea of love from the Father carries over here. That loving kindness that we see in the Old Testament so often. Paul says, if we have, since any consolation of love, since when we suffer, since when we go through trials, since when anything in our life occurs, we experience love from God that consoles us. Now, if, if you have, have had children, especially maybe in some instances a daughter who might cry the drop of a hat and the least little injury is a terribly traumatic event, mine is asleep, so she doesn't know I'm talking about her. There's a lot of consolation in love, right? There's a lot of cuddling and holding and oh my goodness I'm sure that mosquito bite will go away in a day or two I'm, I think you will be fine but it's still that consoling now that's we, we roll our eyes a little at the, the drama God doesn't roll his eyes now I, I, I wonder if sometimes he doesn't want to say boy you ain't going through that much get back to work get back at it but I, I know that there are real times, and, and, and the Scripture tells us that when His people suffer, we have God's consolation in His love. We, we have that love that comforts us, that consoles us. So Christ encourages us, keep going, keep suffering. Keep giving, keep doing. The love of God holds us and consoles us and says, I will be here through this situation. And then thirdly, we have the fellowship, if any fellowship with the Spirit, since there is fellowship with the Spirit. Remember what I talked about last week. One team, one offensive line, one kickoff return team running the now band wedge maneuver as they work through the team. We are one team contending within, and we talked about last week also, the powerful sphere 
of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're not inside him in, in some locational sense. We experience his power as we connect to him, as we are within his sphere of influence, within his sphere of business. And Paul says, since we have that fellowship, and remember back a few weeks, what did we say fellowship was? Partnership. Partnership. So we have a partnership in the Spirit. Any partnership with the Spirit makes sense. Now, really, the sphere of influence, if you're in a partnership with someone in a business venture, you're going to be within their sphere of influence and, and they within yours and, and you're going to have communication and you're going to work together. Otherwise, your business probably is not going to succeed if you're working against or outside of the sphere of your business partner. In Christ, in the gospel, in the ministry, in church, we as a group of believers must work within the sphere of our partnership with the Spirit. One team contending within that powerful sphere of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul tacks on a personal note. In e if any affection and mercy, which kind of breaks our Trinitarian idea. Well... We'll get to that in a second. This one team, this, this consolation of love from God, this, this encouragement from Christ serves as our motivation for unity. Since Christ encourages all of you. Since the love of God consoles all of you. Since you are all within the influential sphere of the Holy Spirit, why, why, why are you not unified as a church? Paul's getting to something. I've already, last week, already referenced what he's going to say to uh, Euodia and Syntyche at the end of the book, in chapter 4, in the end of the letter. There is, there are beginnings of rumblings, and maybe Maybe it's just the beginnings of beginnings of rumblings in the church at Philippi. But here, some 20 years after he started the church, there are already problems. And he can already see little cracks from his vantage point, from his pastoral heart that we're going to talk about here in a minute. He can see the fissures beginning, little, little weaknesses here and there. And he is warning them now. If you've got the same Jesus, if you've got the same God, if you've got the same Holy Spirit, then unify. Since you have those things. If you have them, and we know you do, unify. Not only do we have Trinitarian power, but like I said, he, he adds this little phrase, if any affection and mercy, we have a divine relationship. So we, we have the Trinitarian power and we have a divine relationship. He is really referencing himself here in uh, if any affection and mercy. One of the things Paul does throughout Philippians is, I don't know if y'all remember, it's been a long time since I played it. I didn't play it a lot. There was a game called Tribond. It was one of those... Uh, Board games like uh, Scattergories and Taboo. It came out about the same time. 
and it was a word that, or three words that you had to figure out, the one word that was connected to them or something like that. I don't remember exactly the, the rules, but that was the idea behind it. You, you were given three clues. What's the one word that connects those three? Throughout Philippians, Paul is going to say that there is a tri-bond connection between Philippi himself and God, the, the Trinity. They, they, there is a mutual love. There is a mutual working together, right? That's this whole idea of partnership that he's going to talk about over and over. But it's not going to be, I'm doing my thing as Paul over here, and church, y'all are doing your thing over here as the church at Philippi, and then God's doing whatever it is God does in his Trinitarian way. But instead, it is interconnected. It is uh, dependent. God doesn't depend on on us for anything, but he did call us, he did give us a duty and a job, but the work of Paul and the work of the church are dependent on each other, and they are both dependent on our triune God. And so that's the little push he gives here when he says, if any affection and mercy, since there's an affection and mercy, right? He, he's already talked about in the previous passage their love for him and how uh, even in his imprisonment, the gospel's still going out. This has actually been a good thing for the gospel, he says. So they have this mutual affection. They've had mercy by sending him notes of encouragement and that sort of thing. So this mutual affection and mercy that he's talking about are based on the Trinitarian power that they have. Paul and the church have a divine relationship because of their mutual relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Another way to say that, they have a mutual affection and mercy based on this shared salvation and adoption. There's Christ. The, the encouragement from Christ, the love of God, and the power of the Spirit. Paul tells them, if we have this, if, if you and I, church, have this relationship, we're unified, or at least we should be. And our relationship is divine. That business partnership that one person and another person have is not divine, especially sometimes if you talk to the business partners. They will tell you how divine that relationship is not. But there's no biblical grounds for it. There's no co spiritual connection, probably. In Christ, as the church, Paul is saying, we have this mutual affection and mercy for each other. You ought to be able to see where Paul's going with this already. There's a lot of we share this, we share that, we have this mutual in our triune God. But he keeps going. He stops there. Since we have these, encouragement in Christ, consolation and love, fellowship with the Spirit, mutual affection and mercy. Since we have these things, now comes the imperative in this passage. A pastoral imperative. We have a pastoral imperative. Paul says, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. Paul could have appealed to a number of different sources, a, no, a number of different encouragements 
imperatives on why. Make God's joy complete. Make Jesus' joy complete. But Paul is intentional here to say, make my joy complete. It is a pastoral imperative. Remember, we talked about Philippians is an exhortational book written to this church from their founding pastor who still had quite a connection, was still raising up leaders in the church and training them along as he could, visiting them on occasion. And he writes this letter as a former pastor to the church to come together in unity. And he gives them here his pastoral imperative and says, make my, make my, there's your, your imperative verb, joy. Well, again, right? Now we've covered the two major themes of Philippians, the joy of partnership. We've already talked about partnership in the Spirit. Make my joy complete. Part of that partnership for Paul was that affection and mercy that they and he share. That affection and mercy is that partnership. You love me, I love you. You care for me, I care for you. We're merciful, I'm merciful to you, you are merciful to me. It is a relationship that we have founded on Jesus Christ, and it's the major theme of the letter. Make my joy, this joy that I have in serving along with you, of leading you as your pastor, he says, make my joy complete. Now he has already said, uh, as we got into the book, got into the letter, how they still bring him joy, how he rejoices. And I told you, joy or some version of that word like rejoice has been used, is used 16 times in this letter to the Philippians. He's telling them now, complete my joy, make my joy complete, make it fulfilled. It seems a little early in the letter for him to say, and for him to be saying, hey, this will do it for me right here. You do this thing, my joy for you, my joy in our relationship, my joy in our shared mission will be fully complete as your pastor if you would just do this one thing. Make my joy complete. Complete. Fulfill what we are about. See, that's the completion. It's not like, I'm just not as happy with you as I could be. That's not what Paul's saying. I'm certainly, he, he, he has some, some concerns about where they're heading. But his idea of completion here is not that he would be as happy as he could be, but that their mission, their goal, that they would fulfill the very thing that they are supposed to be about, which is sharing the gospel in our communities. And this joy is a part of that. This completion is a part of that. And then he says, as he follows, the final piece to your evangelism of your communities is your own sanctification. That's actually where he's going to go. You, wanna, you have this Trinitarian power. We have this divine relationship. My pastoral imperative to you is to make my joy complete by being sanctified as a believer, continuing to grow in your faith. And these are necessary steps for a team, right? If we continue my football analogy, 
How many times do the great football teams practice the same things over and over? Uh, <clears throat> I'm not going to think of his name now. He was the Super Bowl winning coach for the San Francisco 49ers for a long time. Coach Joe Montana. Bill Walsh, thank you. I knew somebody would know it. They would get so frustrated, and Steve Young particularly following in Joe Montana's footsteps did. I've heard him give this testimony. Because Bill Walsh would run these drills where the receivers would go down the sideline, and Steve Young would have to take his five-step, three-step, seven-step, whatever drop, and he would throw the ball, and the ball would be perfectly right here. And Bill Walsh would say, no, right here. Do it again. This was where he wanted the ball. And they would run that drill over and over and over. He didn't want his receiver to have to reach here or here. He wanted that receiver to put up his hands and there's the ball. What's the most comfortable, what's the most uh, uh, um, accessible position, then he can go wherever he needs to, right here. Over and over and over. And that's what Paul is saying Run the play again. Constantly be working toward this. Constantly be working on your sanctification. But primarily, he's going to say, stop the bickering and the murmuring. How can a team work together if the teammates are fighting all the time? Oh, we've seen it, right? We, we've seen football teams and and especially when we get to the pros and they're, they're paid and, and they, they expect certain things, we see the teammates that just cannot get along, do not get along. And generally, they don't play well together. They don't connect. If, if Joe Montana had not liked Jerry Rice or vice versa, they would not have done as well as they did in the 80s as a, a, a Super Bowl winning team. But they've got to stop bickering and murmuring. He didn't throw it right. He didn't have his hands in the right position. And instead, listen to the coach and do what the coach says. Here's how you fix this problem, the coach says. And the teammates do what they're supposed to do. Does that sound like the team that we, the church, are supposed to be as we listen to our heavenly coach who says, do these things? And what he is saying in verse 2 and begins at the end of verse 2, we have to get our act together. Paul says you have to get your acts together. That's not the words he uses, but he, he gets there. Make my joy complete, complete, he says, by telling us to do three things. Thinking the same way, having the same love, uniting in spirit, intent on one purpose. Those two phrases really go together. The church in Philippi had to get their act together. First, they had to think the same way. And that's not talking about the, the way they process information. That's not even necessarily thinking uh, uh, the, the same about everything. What he is saying is to have the same mindset, the same focus, the same intent, the same purpose, the same reason for existence. This is not uniformity. As a matter of fact, uniformity is not good. He's going to get to that in another letter. What if everybody was the eye? What if everybody was the foot? 
We don't want uniformity. We want unity. We want all the various body parts all doing their job for the one focus, the one purpose, the one intent that Christ has set before us. Have the same mind. Think the same way. The second thing he says to have is the same love. Now, if you just kind of read through this passage and you read about Jesus, Christ, consolation of love, spirit, you might get the impression he's saying have the same love as them. Now, interestingly enough, he's going to get to that when he talks about uh, Christ in chapter and in verse five, and he talks about adopting the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. I mean, there's a hint of that here. But when he says to the church in Philippi, "Think the same way," he's talking about the people in the seats all thinking the same way as each other. You have the mindset of him, and she has the mindset of her, and so on and so forth. Secondly, he th- second thing he says, having the same love. Have the same love for each other. I love you. You love me. No, we're not singing anything by Barney. Have the same love, but instead of... Some of us like to have the same love for each other, Right? She don't love me, I don't love her. Now we got the same love for each other. Mm. <laughs> See, that's not what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, we are supposed to, to elevate our love. Our love is founded and grounded in God. And if we found and ground our love for each other in God, and we then love each other in that way, we're we're basing our love for each other not on the person, not that the eye thinks the foot's unnecessary, and so on and so forth, but that we are seeing each other as God sees us all necessary and useful parts of the kingdom. We will have the same love for each other. Now, Paul has told them at the beginning of the passage, at the beginning of the letter, that that he taught he he thank he's thankful for their love for each each other love in the church of philippi is not missing but it is in danger and i I could i could close my eyes and you could give me a map of every church in the country close my eyes and just bloop and that church is in danger of losing its love due to schism due to bickering due to murmuring due to fights and i can close my eyes again and boop and that church is in danger we are all in danger it does not matter how much or how little uh, love we have at a particular moment. The trend is toward chaos, entropy, problems. We have to fight for unity. We have to work for unity. That's why the imperative is make my joy complete by doing these things. The third thing he says here, having the same Love, I said that, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That is one idea. So first we're supposed to have the same mind, then the same love. Thirdly, we, here we have the same attitude. We have the same emotion. And by then basically repeating when he says intent on one purpose, he's really just talking about the same thing he's already said, thinking the same way. That's one goal, one focus, one intent. He is melding our mind and our emotions, our thoughts and our feelings. He's saying, connect those things. In in yourself, make sure that what you think and what you feel match for the purpose of the gospel. One singular purpose or mindset 
in the church. Now, some of you really astute ones are going to look at that and say, Now, Michael, in verse 1 he says, Any fellowship with the Spirit, and that's probably clearly the Holy Spirit. In verse 2 he says, United in Spirit. Is that not the Holy Spirit too? Because way back in uh, an earlier verse, you said when it mentions Spirit... That it's not mindset, it's Holy Spirit. Now, Michael, which is it? How do we know? That's a great question. I'm glad you thought of that. The word here, united in spirit, the word spirit is not pneuma, which is the word that's always used for Holy Spirit, also used for breath. It's the word simpsycho. Now, sim means, right, you bring something together. Psycho. We bring all the crazies together. That's what the word, not exactly. It it is telling us that we have the same thoughts, the same emotions, the same feelings. So it's a different spirit. It's not one Holy Spirit. In this case, it really is a, a, a esprit de corps. It's us working together uh, with this one idea. How in the world, Michael, can, you, can, can this happen? Have you seen, have you been to churches? Are you familiar with the differing opinions and thoughts and uh, all that goes on? And, and if you're on Facebook, you saw the post that I put yesterday. And there are a lot of, as, as I said, there, there are a lot of different opinions on how the church is supposed to handle this virus and whether these are necessary, or they're stupid, or if the government's right or wrong, and it's all these various things, and there, as many people as we have in here, we have opinions, but the beauty, and, and, and as I, again, as I said in the post, I have seen friends of mine, pastors, getting anonymous letters about how, and not so anonymous sometimes, about they have no faith because they're not opening the church, and how they don't love the, uh, their people because they are loving the church, and all this horrible stuff. And let me tell you, from my church family, I have not received one of those. Not a single one. Because we're unified. And I'm excited about that. These aren't tears of sadness. Boy, I really wish y'all would rip me apart. It's not, no, um, seriously, it, it is... Did I come unplugged? Yep, sounds like it right there. We'll try that. It is God taking us and bringing us together. And, and, and I, I, I'm sure there's some sitting here right now that say we should have opened sooner or this is kind of odd or we shouldn't be or whatever. And yet, thank you that you have just let the Lord leads your staff, and we make the best decisions we can. That's the idea, right? I don't agree, or I think this would have been a better plan, but we are of the same mind, the same emotion. Why? I've used this analogy before. If, if we tune a piano, and, and say, we, we own, say you're a, a, a piano salesperson, and you own a, a, a showroom full of pianos, and you ch- tune this piano in the corner. If you then go down the line around your showroom, and you have 30 pianos, and you tune it to that one piano, by the time you get to the end, 
the last, the 30th piano and the first piano will not match. All sorts of variables in there, temperature, humidity, all these things that the air conditioner's blowing right on it or not, they just, they all, and, and, and just, just the ear, did I hear that? Right, okay, one more time, I got it, and, and, so, and, and so if you tune all the instruments to the next instrument, it's not going to work. A piano tuner tunes each piano individually to a tuning fork, usually, or at least some sort of objective standard. The piano itself is not an objective standard. You tune to an objective standard. And then all the pianos will match because they match the one. How does a church unify? Because every church member tunes him or herself to Christ. And then every church member then matches in tune because we are all basing our tuning on the same source, not on each other. I don't base my tuning on you because I might not like you as much as I like somebody else. But if my focus is Christ, then I tune myself to him and we all come together. Similar analogy would be the principal violinist in an orchestra. And I think maybe even a better analogy. Because with a tuning fork, it's the same fork... Or it's, it's one fork to the same instrument. But in an orchestra, the entire orchestra tunes to that violin. Now, in this case, the violin could be out of tune and, well, too bad. But go with me on the analogy. The tuba tunes to the violin. The flute tunes to the violin. The trumpet tunes to the violin. The trombone, the saxophone, whatever's in the orchestra. The, the viola, the, the cello, the timpani get their tuning based on that one standard note of the violin. Are all those instruments the same? They all have different parts. They all play in different registers. They all play melodies and harmonies and counter melodies and sometimes dissonant melodies, but they are still a part of that one piece of music tuned to the one objective standard. And that's the body of Christ. We've got some tubas and timpanis and violas and cellos and flutes and triangles and some, some, some whip cracks and some cowbells. We always need more cowbell. And yet we tune to the one, the one Christ. And then the bulk. And I, I, I've taken more time on these first two verses than I intended to, so I'm going I'm to fly through here. As we make his joy complete by thinking and having and uniting, he says, you do that through humility. Humility is how it happens. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. He's, he's foreshadowing. He, he knows there's some stuff going on. He knows that there's some reasons some things are happening. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out, not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. He suspects this ambition and rivalry. 
And this idea of conceit that he says here is empty, self-applied glory. That's, that's, what, I, that's what conceit is. He says it's, it's tooting your own horn. It's, it's blowing the trumpet as you walk through. And, and, and that's conceit. I'm good, I'm great, I'm something. But humility, though, he says, but humility. That is a uniquely Christian virtue. Humility was considered a shortcoming in Rome. You, you didn't want to be humble. That was a vice. That You were less than. And he's not talking about groveling. He's talking about not thinking of yourself. Putting others before you. Not thinking, oh, you're so much better than me. This is not estimation. This is, oh, you're so much, I'm just a, I, you know, it's not that smarmy thing that, that C.S. Lewis talks about. It's that I am caring about you more than I care about myself. And this phrase actually modifies that phrase earlier from having the same mindset, thinking the same way. Each of us should have humility toward each other. Think the same way, you and me and you and you. Think humility toward each other. If we get that, we get the unity. And then in verse 4, he says the same thing in just a different way. Another way to consider the others more important than yourself. The community, the church family is more important than the individual members of the church. We can cut the finger off and we can lay it there and that finger is going to rot. It is the unity, it is the community of that finger with the church. It is the body parts working together that is important. But, he says, obedience, or he he implies obedience begins with the individual. It is your individual responsibility to humble yourself so that you can have unity in the church. You are expected to look out for yourself to some extent. He says, look out not only for his own interests. Don't just do. Take care of yourself and, and do the things you need to do. I, I, but don't neglect others in the process. I, I, I thought of the, the oxygen masks on airplanes. If you have a child with you or someone who is uh, unable to put the mask on, do you put the mask on the person next to you first before you put the mask on you? No, because then you both going to die. Put it on yourself so that you can breathe and then help the person next to you breathe. Work on yourself. Get yourself right with the Lord. Tune yourself to the almighty tuning fork and then you will be able to humble yourself and help others in a way that will lead to unity in the church. Or, and this is my final thought on this, just see Jesus in the person you're looking at. Tune yourself to the tuning fork, absolutely, but, but look at that person and say, there's somebody Jesus loves. And they may be a believer, part of our church family. They may be an unbeliever, as far from God as you can possibly imagine, but God still loves that person. And God wants that person to be saved. So what should I do? Have a unified mindset, unified love, unified spirit, and unified purpose. That's what we need to do. We've got the power. 
We're given the ability. We have the Trinity who leads us to this. Then, once we have that unified mindset, love, spirit, and purpose, we think of ourselves less and we think of others more. This will probably not help me keep me from getting any virus. And chances are, given my age and my health, the virus won't mess with me too much anyway. Just statistically. But I wear it for other people. I do it for them. I think of them more than me. This is a minor inconvenience to try to protect somebody else. So I do it. Think of yourself less and others more. And then, church, imagine, pray about, meditate on the joy of partnership if every member of our church family outdid each other in humility. Imagine what that would be like. What kind of church we would have. The, the people who would want to come and see what in the world is going on in that place. I'm not into attractional models of church and we just need to do things that are going to get them in. But that would attract people. That runs the people off. Ah, they just throw their groveling at each other. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. But we would know as we tune ourselves to the tuning fork that we were doing God's will. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us, that you, that you continue to tune us. And Lord, may we see you, may we unify in you, in the Father, in the Son, in the Holy Spirit. May our unity begin in that Trinitarian power we have, and may it compel us to, to think and to love and to unify and do it with humility, putting others before ourselves in all things. God, work on us, work on our church, work on all of our churches to have that sort of unity. Lord, we pray for your hand on our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe there's another humility you need this morning. Maybe you need to humble yourself before the cross. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you need to do that. And that takes humility to say, I'm a sinner and I need salvation. Maybe you need to come before him this morning, come before the Lord and say, I understand you had a plan, you had a purpose, you had a design, right? Our three circles. You had a design, but my sin leads to a brokenness of your design. That leads to a brokenness in my life that I cannot fix on my own. And only the gospel can fix it. The gospel of Jesus Christ that says if you repent and believe and put your faith in the Son of God who lived a sinless life, died on the cross, was buried, and rose from the grave on the third day, that, that what we sang about, right? I will trust him for my salvation. You will experience that salvation. You will be saved. And then you will begin to recover and pursue God's design for your life, you will see an opportunity for humility and unity with people that you never thought you could be unified with, different races, different classes, different types, different looks. They're now brothers and sisters because we are in Christ. All right, as I said last week, our invitation looks different now. We encourage you to pray where you are if you'd like to. We just turn uh, uh, and kneel at your seat if you want. If you would like prayer from one of our staff, 
grab us and we can step into a room uh, in the back, B100, B101 back there, and we would love to pray for you. We're trying to keep the, the interaction, as, the physical interaction as, limit, as limited as possible. But we still want to pray with you. If you'd like to accept Christ and would like more information, we'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you want to comment on the Facebook page or YouTube, send us a message, an email, whatever it is. But this morning, we're going to worship for about five more minutes. And this is going to be your time to let what we've read and what we've studied sink in and let God move on you this morning in Jesus' name. Let's stand, if you want to, and let's sing. <laughs>